Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the lessons that we've learned from the book of Romans. And we thank you for today, that you may tell us how to endure suffering. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I remember uh, there was once a man that I did baptism class with. A young man, and uh, he was full of enthusiasm for the gospel. As we went through the baptism class, at the end of it, something interesting happened. He decided not to get baptized. And the reason was because he was getting lots of opposition from his parents. And he was getting a really, really hard time, especially from his father. And yet he chose not to get baptized, but he said to me that he would still remain a Christian. But over time, the pressure and pressure kept getting to him. And today, unfortunately, he's no longer a Christian. And that's the problem of suffering, right? One of the problems of suffering is that there is a great temptation to give up your faith. And the question that we are faced with today in the book of Romans is how do we endure that suffering? How do you pass through that suffering? How do you persevere through that suffering? Because over the last few weeks, we've been learning about how uh, God uh, brings judgment upon us all. No one can escape it, right? It doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what, you know, pedigree you have, you just can't escape suffering. Uh, sorry, uh, God's judgment. But it is only because Jesus died for our sins and takes our sins that we are able to escape God's judgment because we are now forgiven. But the death of Jesus Christ doesn't end there, right? Because Jesus takes the penalty for our sin, but God, as we've learned over the last few weeks, gives us the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we are able to then please God and to obey the law that He's given us. So therefore, we are no longer under the power of sin and the fear of death. Okay, We no longer are under the, the judgment of death and neither are we in fear of sin itself because the power of sin has been broken in us because of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, as we learned last week, that we now have peace and life true unity in Jesus Christ. And also, we are now part of God's family. And that's where we ended up last week, if you remember. So last week, when we looked at the early part of chapter 8, it ends by saying, uh, if you look, I think that printed out. Oh no, not yet. Okay, so if you look at your Bibles, it says in verse 14 of chapter 8, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you have received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are God's children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now that last little verse last week, we didn't actually um, cover, right? but it is a very, very important section, which is the link to what we're doing now, isn't it? Because if you look up here, there's a conditionality to it. There's a conditionality. We will only be part of the family of God, and co-heirs with Christ, what's the word? If, if we share in the sufferings in order to share in His glory. And that's what is the whole main topic of what we see today. 
right? How do we go through the sufferings that we need to go through in order to share in the glory that we will definitely receive in Jesus Christ? Now, when we talk about suffering, we'll see today that actually the suffering that uh, the Bible has in mind is not limited to suffering in terms of I suffer because of my temptation to sin or suffering limited in the sense where I'm persecuted as a Christian or suffering limited to the suffering that I generally experience living in this sinful world. I think when it talks about suffering, when it looks at this section, it's very general. It's a general suffering of everything. Suffering because I'm struggling with sin, suffering because I'm persecuted and suffering because I'm suffering as part of the sinful world. And all those things are challenges to my faith in their peculiar ways. So here we'll begin in verse 18 by by the Bible telling us how do we go through these sufferings that we need to go through in order to share in the sufferings of Christ. So the first thing he says, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay, so he said before in the previous verse, we need to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ in order to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he tells us is, if we do suffer, no matter how hard that suffering is, it is nothing compared to the glory that we will receive when we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, it's not saying that our sufferings are, you know, irrelevant or, you know, tiny. You know, it's not like saying, oh, wow, you know, you're suffering. Maybe, like, you're in Iraq or something or Syria and then, you know, the ISIS, you know, killed, you know, your whole family or burned your house down and you say, ah, it's irrelevant, it's irrelevant, right? It's not saying that at all. But what it's saying is that it is this suffering, no matter how great and harsh the suffering we experience today, it is it is not worth comparing with the glory. That means it's, it's a relative thing, right? One day when you're sitting in heaven, in glory with Jesus Christ, and you look back at your suffering, you'll say, ah, that is nothing compared to what I have now. Right? So take myself, for instance, you know, like, I think the worst pain that I ever experienced is a bad stomach ache. Okay, I was good, but I'm sorry. But then, you know, when I tell my wife I got bad stomach, she always say, ah, yo, your stomach Nothing compared to me giving birth, right? But then also, even though the pain of giving birth is really bad, and I, and I, and I believe it's really bad, uh, okay, I was there for my, my, both my son's birth, it's really bad, but yet, even as bad as it is, uh, my wife was willing to have a second child, right? Why was that? Because the, 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 having, the, the reality of having a baby makes the suffering almost seem not worth comparing, isn't it? You see, the way that uh, the world deals with suffering is, oh, okay, you, 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 you have no leg. Okay, well, think of other people who don't have both legs, right? But that's not the way the Bible deals with suffering. The Bible deals with suffering by saying, look forward to the future. Look forward to the glory and the splendor that is awaiting you. It's a bit like a soccer player, right? You know, or someone who's a student, you know, you spend your days slogging and suffering, studying and working and training. Then finally, when you when you hold the World Cup or, you know, the FA Cup or the League Cup, whatever, then it makes all that suffering seem not worth comparing or when you get your degree or whatever. 
But here, in this passage, it is, it is something which will definitely happen. You see, there's a we that will there, right? You will certainly receive that glory. That glory will be revealed in you. And when it's finally revealed, when you look back, you'll see that all the suffering that you've undergone or persevered through was worth it. In fact, it's not even worth thinking about when you consider the eternity of glory that you'll receive. The passage then goes on in verse 19 right, by saying, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. See, what it's trying to show here is that even the creation itself, and we're talking about the, the world, right? The, the, the mountains and the, and the oceans and the fish and the birds and the air. They are looking forward to this great day of glory when, the, when uh, Christians will be receiving and revealing their glory. Why? Because the whole of creation itself, as we can see there, is living in frustration. It is in bondage or slavery to decay, and it is like groaning is in the pains of childbirth. Right? So it's almost as if uh, that, that creation is like looking forward to this great day when we will receive glory. And if, if creation itself is looking forward to this glory, then how much more should we look forward to this glory? You see what happened was in Genesis chapter 3, right, when God cursed the earth because of the sin of Adam and Eve, it said to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It produced thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. You see, creation was not subjected to frustration on its own, but God subjected uh, um, creation to frustration. But when God overturns the curse of uh, of, of creation and, and sin, then creation itself will be liberated from the thorns and thistles, from the, the way creation itself has been in bondage to this curse. And I like the, the word there, right, which is actually used. It says creation itself, right, oops, wrong one. Creation itself looks forward in eager expectation. Okay, can you see where it is? Uh, where is it? Eager expectation. Can you see up there? And I like the, the word the commentary uses. It's almost as if creation is on tiptoes, right? You know, like you're on tiptoes trying to look forward into the future, right? And that's what creation is doing. Like tip, creation is standing on tiptoes looking forward to when we will receive our glory. 
So therefore, if the whole of creation is looking forward to glory in that way, then it must mean that the glory which comes must be a great and wonderful thing, right? It doesn't matter how much you're suffering today, that glory which is coming will overwhelm and surpass any of your suffering today. And that's why, uh, in verse 23, it says, uh, not only so, not only for the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now what it's saying here is that just as creation was groaning and eagerly waiting on tiptoes for the glory to come, then we too, we are groaning inwardly, but at the same time we also wait eagerly on our tiptoes for the glory to come. Now we may look forward to many things in life, right? I don't know what you look forward to. Maybe you look forward to the day when Arsenal wins the, the EPL Cup, right? Might be waiting a long time for that, okay? Or you wait for the day you get your degree, or maybe you wait for the day you retire. Or I don't know, you wait for something or other, but, but you never know whether you're gonna get it. But here, there is a certainty, right? Because we wait eagerly for our adoption as God's family, the redemption of our bodies. That means our bodies will cast off uh, death and decay and corruption and be given a, a new body. Now this a new body, which is not just subject to sin and futility and suffering and decay, we know we will receive. Why? Because it says there, that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, what, what, why, why does he use the word the first fruits of the Spirit, right? I mean, why didn't he just say the Spirit? You see, in the olden days, what happens is, um, people used to give in the temple to God the first fruit. So let's say you're a farmer, you make apples, or you, you farm oranges, I don't know what you make, uh, you know, rice or whatever, okay? You would give the first crop to the to the temple as a symbol that you have given everything is like the first fruit represents everything else. It's it, you know the first fruit is a representative of everything else. So in the same way, the 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 Holy Spirit that we've received from God is like a first fruit. It is the promise and the guarantee that we receive all the blessings of God. That we receive glory the redemption of our bodies, eternal life. Now, what it means is, it allows us, if you look very carefully, to wait uh, patiently because we know that we will certainly receive the redemption of our bodies. Actually, the word patiently here is the idea of endurance. Right? We are able to endure and wait patiently even through suffering. Because we know that we have not yet received what has been promised to us. See, part of the problem with suffering is Christians often don't know how to suffer properly. 
Right? So maybe we suffer by forcing ourselves to be stoic. You know, we don't, don't enjoy things. You know, it is wrong to enjoy things. But that's not the, the way to endure suffering, right? To say, oh, well, you know, it's all in the mind. Uh, where, okay, I, I just don't, you know, I, I, it's all very worldly. I'll just separate myself from this worldliness and then see whether we can, uh, you know, just don't think so much about it. Like, let's just be, be not so mindful about it, right? Or maybe there's another way of doing it. And what we do is we, uh, we try to focus and think that actually suffering is not part of the, the Christian lifestyle. So there's, uh, you know, uh, prosperity gospel, which basically says that there is no suffering. Right? So I don't suffer. I'm not supposed to suffer because God doesn't want me to suffer. In fact, God wants me to, to have less and less suffering in life because He wants to bless me. But again, this is not what the Bible tells us, right? To endure suffering is not to uh, empty your mind and not think of suffering and sort of like, you know, remove yourself from the physical world. Neither is it to say, oh, I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be blessed. The Bible actually tells us that suffering is a, a normal part of the Christian life. But it is endurable. We acknowledge the suffering, we recognize the suffering, but we are able to endure it because we know of the certain promise that we will receive, which is the redemption of our bodies and our adoption as part of the family of God. Now, the next section then tells us about how the Holy Spirit also is not just the first fruits of the Spirit, but the Bible also tells us that the Spirit helps us in our prayers. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. See, what happens when we suffer? Sometimes when we suffer, we don't know what to pray for, right? We keep praying that God will take away the suffering, take away the suffering, take away the suffering, but then the suffering is still there. But the Holy Spirit in us uh, groans for us. And the Holy Spirit, as it groans, prays the mind of God for us. I like what this guy Ray Glear said. It is like, if, if, if I knew myself the way God knew me, then this is what I would pray for. Right? If I knew me the way God knows me as I am, this is how He would want me to pray. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit does for me. I may not, you know, when the last time when you were facing frustration, you were suffering, pain, agony, there are times where you don't know what to pray for, right? You just feel so desperate. But the Holy Spirit in you is praying for you what really matters. What really matters in God's eyes. It is praying for you with and accordance the mind of God's will. And what is the Holy Spirit praying for you when it groans for you in your suffering? Well, verse 28 says this. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now this verse, uh, Romans 8.28, is a very, very popular verse. Uh, if you go to my house, you'll see this verse hanging in my toilet, right? And, and I, if you go to Johnson's house or so, you'll see this verse hanging in his toilet too. And I, and I think there must be a reason for it, because you know, every time you get stomach ache, right? You look at this verse and you think, okay, God is working through my stomach ache somehow, right? But I think many people misunderstand it. It's not saying that God will work for your good in terms of, uh, you know, giving you good stuff um, through your pain and suffering. It's saying that actually God works for the good of those who love Him through all things. Now, uh, we could always, I think we could almost spend one whole sermon on this verse, right? But actually, it's, it's a very powerful verse. Those who love Him are those who have been called by Him. Okay? It is an effective and effectual call. God calls. When He calls you, you will respond in love. Those who love God, God is working through all things, even in our suffering. And what is He seeking to achieve? What is He seeking that the Holy Spirit was groaning about? It is we, that we would be more conformed to be like Jesus Christ. Right, we would be able to be more and more like Jesus Christ, even in our suffering. That Jesus suffered, but yet He persevered. Jesus suffered, but yet He was faithful. So in the same way, when we face suffering, we will continue to allow God to be working in us so that we be more and more like Jesus. Remember, come back to chapter 8, verse 17. Remember? If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. See, just as we share in the sufferings of Jesus and become more and more like Him, we will also share in His suffering, in His glory. And that's why it says here that as we become more and more conformed like Jesus, He will be the firstborn among many brothers. See, because Jesus is our leader, Jesus has been born again, Jesus has, has been brought to life again from death. So we will be brought to life and follow Jesus and we will follow Him like He is our elder brother. Right? So that's what's happening here. As we suffer, we follow the path of Jesus. We suffer like Jesus and not deny God or be unfaithful to God, but we become more and more conformed like Jesus and are able to accept the suffering that God puts us through because we know that this is God's will for us in this life. And that's why actually the next section is what many people call uh, the golden chain, right? Because one of the problems when we confront suffering is that we struggle to know what the point of it is. You know, often when you're struggling with suffering, you're like, what, what is the point of this? Why is God making me suffer like this? It's like Job, right? You know, why, why is God doing this to me? Is it because of sin in some way that I do something wrong? Well, not really. Because according to this passage, when we suffer, it is part of God's plan and He will bring us through it to glorification. See, look what it says there in verse 30. Did I print verse 30 out? Oh yes, we did. 
He said, and those he predestined, that means predestined is the idea of he's already chosen you, right, beforehand, right? Those he predestined, he also called. Call means that he's effectually calling you to him. He also justified. That means that you are now sinless before God. And he also glorified. Now, in all of these things that are part of the golden chain, you notice that there is one part which is still to come, one part which is still the future, which is glorification. Because we have been predestined. We have been called. We have been justified, but we haven't yet been glorified. But what the Bible is saying is that we should never despair in our suffering because we are part of this golden chain and God continues to watch over us and we will reach that final glory which makes all this suffering seem like nothing at all. See, what a wonderful thing to know that God is the one who is actually in charge of everything that we are enabled to go to live through suffering, to come out and to know that you will definitely receive your glory. And therefore, that's why in verse 31 to verse uh, 39, it's all about the certainty of this glory, that this golden chain can never be broken. And that's what verse 31 to 39 is all about. Nothing, nothing in this world, nothing in heaven, nothing, no power is great enough to stop you from being glorified because God has chosen you. So in verse 31 to 39, there are several questions which are being asked, right? Okay, so what's the first question? I don't know if I have any more slides. I don't think so. No, that's it. You can read it here. The first question is, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be? Against us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So the first thing is, if God is the one who has called us, predestined us, justified us, and goes glory glorify us, then who can stand against God's plan? It must be no one, right? And I think the point that's being made here is, if God already gave you Jesus Christ, then then He's done the hard thing, why would He not give you the full glory that He's promised, right? See, think of it a moment, right? Let's imagine uh, Minkit is here, okay? So let's say, Minkit, I gave Minkit $1,000 every week. Okay, just hypothetically, right? Okay. Now, if He then came and asked me for five cents, would I conceivably deny him five cents? No, right? Because I'm already giving him so much more than the five cents. And that's the point here that's being made. If if God did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us, then why will he not give us what he's already promised? Right? He's already given you his own son to die on the cross for you. Then he goes on to say, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God that justifies. Right? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, it's trying to say that if 
Imagine the High Court of Singapore, I believe it's the highest court in Singapore, finds you not guilty, then who can find you guilty? No one, isn't it? So if God Himself cannot find you guilty because Jesus is there at His right hand saying, not guilty, I paid for your sins. Not guilty, I paid for your sins. Not guilty, I paid for your sins. Then who is it that is able to bring any charge against you? There is no one, isn't it? Because Jesus is there before the mightiest judge in the world and He is standing up for you saying, you are not guilty because I died on the cross for you. So who can bring any charge against you? No one. Then the last part Uh, sort of tries to show us from a relationship standpoint that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. So ask the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor nor any powers, neither height nor depth, neither anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see here, it talks about all the, 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 the suffering that can come about in the world, isn't it? So you think about it, trouble, hardship, famine, all these things come about through normal, normal living in a, in a fallen world, right? But yet these things cannot separate you from the love of God and will separate you from the glory that you'll be receiving. Right? So all this suffering, that's not going to stop you from being saved when Jesus comes again and receiving glory. But it's not just general suffering, but persecution too, isn't it? Shall persecution, nakedness, or danger, or sore, these are the sort of things that, 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 that uh, Christians experience. In fact, if you look in the quote in verse 36, right, which comes from, as your footnote will tell you, from Psalm 44 verse 2, it says that this is the general experience of the people of God. For your sake, we face death all day. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And what it's saying here is that there is no suffering in this world, either by persecution or general suffering, that will ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And it's going to deny you your glory. But it's not just suffering that's in view here, right? Not even spiritual powers are able to separate you from your relationship with Jesus Christ. Look what he says. He says, I'm convinced that not even death or life or angels or demons or any powers, right? It's like none of these things have any power over your destiny of glory and your love in Christ. Right? You can be dead, you can be alive. That's not going to separate you. Angels and demons, any power 
None of those things is able to separate you from the love of Christ and deny you your everlasting glory. In fact, not even time, neither the present nor the future, not even the physical world, right? not even height or depth. In fact, there's nothing in all creation that is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you read this, it really shakes up our view of suffering. Well, at least I hope so. If, if, if I didn't, you have to read it yourself again. Because, you know, in the world that we live in, we live in a suffering avoidance world, right? We, we hate suffering. We take medicine for suffering. We uh, do anything to avoid suffering. Right? I mean, generally, people don't want to go through suffering in any way, right? We don't even like walking in the hot sun, right? Okay? We, we don't like discomfort. We don't like pain. But as Christians, we're different. We're able to willingly endure suffering if we know that it's part of the will of God to bring us to the glory on the other side. You see, you think about it. I remember as we did the Bible study for the other group uh, early on, which is in another book. You know, you think about the Israelites when they went through and they were wandering in the desert to reach the promised land. They were suffering, right? They were suffering greatly, but their suffering was meant to actually just be temporary before they got to the promised land. But because they were willing to, unwilling to endure that suffering, they were grumbling and complaining and moaning all the time. God says, okay, you guys are not going to get the promised land because you're unwilling to go through that suffering to get to the promised land. Now, I think the similarities here, isn't it? Because we have to take on the character of Jesus Christ. We have to be more and more like Jesus and be willing to accept the suffering that God wants us to go through. Confident that God will bring us to the promised land, bring us to glory. You see, I remember um, uh, reading this book and watching the movie quite a while ago called The Empire of the Sun. Okay, It's, it's, it's sort of like an autobiography of, uh, about this Westerner who's caught up in Shanghai when the Japanese invaded and, and they were all brought to prison camps. And the prison camps, many of the uh, POW, they're not really prisoners of war because they're not even, even army people, right? They're just general people, people like you and I. They're living in the prison camp and many of them, they don't survive. You know, many of them, they, they don't make it. And part of the reason is because they don't see the finish line. They're not willing to suffer in order to reach the end. Uh, they're not willing to hold on through suffering to the end. But as Christians, we're very different. See, we have a certain hope. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We know the love of Christ. We know the love of God. We know the redemption of our bodies. We know that God has a certain plan for us. There is a golden chain for us. He's chosen us. Before the creation of the world, He's called us. And He has justified us. And He will glorify us. But all we have to do is to be able to suffer and to suffer well. To be able to suffer and not give up. So have you suffered as a Christian? Have you been tempted to give up? If you're ever tempted to give up, just go back to Romans chapter 8. Remember, God has guaranteed you 
it is a certain guarantee of glory to be adopted as his family. One day when we are all in heaven, in glory, when we look back, all the sufferings that we would have suffered in this world would be nothing compared to what we have received in heaven. So never give up.